to the Event Production Show podcast. These sessions were recorded from our 2022 show and are now available for you to listen to on the move. This session is all about after the Live Green declaration, what's next? In September, the sustainability arm of the UK live events industry umbrella organisation Live launched the Beyond Zero Declaration, a voluntary declaration ratified by all of Live's 13 association members. Its aim is to deliver measurable and targeted action on climate change with the ultimate goal of reaching net zero emissions by 2030. A panel of experts, including AEG Europe COO and Chair of Live Green, John Langford, reveal what progress is being made and the key initial deliverables. Hello, everyone. You're not that either. Thank you for coming. I'm uh, Chris Barrett, editor of Access All Areas magazine. Um, this is the After Live Green Declaration What's Next panel. So we will be looking at um, what's happening across the industry in terms of moving cohesively to a more sustainable future in events. Uh, we've got a fantastic panel up here. Um, we'll start off with, um, at the far end, we've got Lewis Jameson from Music to Players Emergency. Um, we've got Chris Johnson from Vision 2025, also co-founder of the Shambhala Festival. Um, we have AEG Europe and Live Green, um, John Langford. And um, nearest to me here on my left, we've um, got Claire O'Neill, co-founder of a greener festival. So um, just to give a bit of context in as to what everybody does um, with um, a view to sustainability, if we start off with you at the end, Lewis, if you can talk to us a little bit about Music Declares Emergency, um, who's behind it and what your kind of key goals are with the organisation? Okay, um, well, we launched Music Declares Emergency in July of 2019, which proved to be slightly awkward timing given what happens soon after. Um, the ambition and, and the goal of it was to, to take the power of, of music as we saw it and to, to deploy that to, to increase understanding and engagement with the climate emergency. We, we looked at things that we lived through as teenagers like Rock Against Racism or Rock the Vote or those kind of music-led kind of initiatives and we, we wondered to ourselves why there wasn't a coherent response to climate emergency coming from music. So that was our, our founding principle. Um, there were two uh, sides to what we were trying to do. One was to engage artists to use that immense power they have across fan bases to use their, their kind of advocacy to, to encourage their fan bases to get interested in, in, in the climate emergency and the solutions to it. And then on the other side was to not to encourage the industry to, to be more sustainable because we knew that was happening um, through the people that helped us form it. It was more to, to find a coherent way to, to show that the industry was addressing sustainability and the climate challenge and to create an umbrella under which all these various individual actions could find a cohesive whole. And, and that's how we started, that's what we've been working with. And I think the, the, the visibility of the industry's response to climate is in a small part been held by us. I wouldn't take credit for that. And I think the, the work we've done with artists has definitely raised the issue in the music community in a way that it wasn't visible before. Thank you very much. John, um, obviously at EEG you are overseeing you know, some of the most impressive and largest um, arenas across Europe. Um, at LIVE, um, which is a federation of 13 uh, live music industry associations, including the Association of Internet Festivals, and I won't list them all off now, but um, within LIVE it's, it's been a great sort of cohesive movement for the live music industry in terms of lobbying, in terms of taking action, in terms of dealing with certain issues. So um, I know there's a, a kind of um, a panel looking at uh, diversity, there's the um, Craig Stanley's dealing with the touring side of things and you're chairing the um, 
live uh, green working group. Can you just talk me through um, what your kind of who's involved in that group, I guess, and also you, um, you know, a few months back, you, you um, got all the members of LIVE to kind of sign up for the LIVE Green Declaration. Um, so if you can just talk us through, through what's, what, what, what that actually is. Sure. Um, so I think the starting point for this is to understand or to look back at the, the genesis of LIVE. Um, so LIVE as an organization was formed just at the early stages of the pandemic. The live music, the commercial live music industry realized quickly that we weren't set up to, to lobby, to communicate more broadly. We'd always been more inward focused, I think, rather than outward focused. And so essentially live was set up to represent the inter interests of the commercial live music industry. Um, it's, as you refer to it, an association of associations. So we cover 13 primary associations throughout the commercial live music value chain. So, you know, you've got the Featured Artists Coalition at the, at the top end, the sharp pointy bit of the the value chain right through to agents, promoters, managers, venues, to, and then, then to ticketing. Um, not that they're at the end of the value, value chain, but if you're looking at it literally. Um, and as part of getting together, um, essentially organizing ourselves around the COVID response, we recognized that the unity we represented as a commercial live music industry could address a number of other issues that are of interest to not just our you know, 4,000 members, but potentially you know, could make a broader impact from, from the industry. So we, we have, as, as you referenced, looked at a couple of things. So there's diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, there's been a big push around Brexit um, and the impact of, of touring on, on Brexit. But uh, the group that I'm involved with is Live Green, essentially is, is set up for the industry to re respond to the climate emergency. Um, and if we look at what we've been doing over the last year, we've been fortunate because I think as a consequence of COVID, a lot of people within the industry had valuable time on their hands, valuable skill sets, uh, and valuable experience that we could, we could, we could harness. So um, as you correctly said, we, um, we launched a, a charter, which was you know, in the middle of last year. Um, and the charter set out three things. One was it defined our our purpose is live as, as far as the areas of sustainability and, and climate are concerned. So you know, we set out our, our purpose. There's a declaration for um, the 4,000 um, individual members of LIVE, so those companies and individuals working in the industry that they can sign up to. Uh, essentially, it's simply a five-point commitment of actions that they will take. Um, and I think importantly is, is we set out a, a vision statement um, for the sector. And, and the vision was simply to fast track um, our progress towards a position of net zero. So that as a commercial live music industry, we commit to get to that point by 2030. And that covers scope one and scope two emissions and, and business travel. So that's where we are at the moment. And we can talk a little bit later about you know, what we're doing in, in future. But essentially, in summary, that just kind of gives you a background to what we've been doing. Perfect. Okay. Chris, obviously, Shambhala is a very, you know, the, you do, you've done a lot of sustainability work at that event. But we, you've, you know, you, you, you're kind of a sort of integral, really, to the whole sustainability sort of movement. Obviously, you, you know, you, you're involved in Vision 2025. I just want you, if you can just, for, for some people who maybe aren't completely aware of what you do, can you just give a bit of an overview of what, what Vision 2025 is and, and the key kind of um, work that you've been doing recently? 
Sure. Um, so about 10, 11 years ago, a bunch of us got together in the industry simply to have a conversation along the lines of where are we as, as an industry, as an outdoor festival industry specifically, that's my, my world. And where do we see ourselves in five, 10 years in terms of sustainability? <clears throat> uh, so myself and Alison from Julie's Bicycle and a bunch of other folk just uh, put the word out really and said, who, who wants to come and have this conversation? Um, and what came out of that conversation was that there were a lot of barriers to taking the steps we wanted to take. There was a lot of shared ideas around where we'd like to go and really by accident, we decided that it was, it was the next step would be to form a group. Um, so that became Vision 2025. There were a couple of name changes along the way. Uh, and ostensibly, Vision 2025 is a group of trade associations in the outdoor festival industry uh, that for the last 10 years have been steering and responding to um, the steps we can take on climate action and sustainability in the, festival, in the outdoor festival industry. So the kind of things we've done is that in response to COP21 in Paris in 2015, it was really apparent that as an industry, we didn't have um, a sense of what's our starting point, what are our benchmarks, where are we going, what's our roadmap. So we published the Show Must Go On report in 2015, which, which uh, set those things out, uh, which really defines Vision 2025 in terms of what we're trying to do is encourage support, provide resources, um, case studies, guides, um, a portal on the Vision 2025 website to almost everything that we've found that exists um, to support event organizers around sustainable measures at festivals. And all of that is, is, is coalescing to try and support people to achieve a 50% or at least a significant reduction in their emissions by 2025. So that's what we're up to. And perhaps I'll talk about the Green Code a little later. I was going to mention that. I mean, why, why not just talk about it a little bit briefly here? Because we talked about the declaration, if you don't mind just doing a brief. Yes. Idea. So um, partly in response to uh, the sense that we need to act urgently because it's a climate and ecological emergency. <clears throat> and partly in response to the work that was done in the wider music industry around Life Green and the declaration. Uh, as a steering group which represents one subsector of this music industry, that being outdoor festivals, we felt it was time to respond more meaningfully to the challenge. And so, uh, actually there's another piece of context here, which was that, the, that it, again, on the, on, on the basis of um, the industry finding a way forward, uh, coping with the pandemic, there was a select committee hearing last May on the future of music festivals. Now, there are a couple of questions tabled as part of that select committee. Um, and the recommendations from that select committee, uh, one, of, one of them <coughs> uh, was that local authorities uh, could play an active role in uh, monitoring or managing the environmental performance of festivals. Um, the government responded to that to say, okay, that sounds sensible, we'll have a look at that. That brief sits with the DCMS. Uh, and at that point, uh, us as a steering group rep actually representing around 600 event businesses through the trade associations such as AIF, AFO, PSA, etc. It's another sort of long list of acronyms. Uh, we thought, okay, well, how do we respond to this uh, as an industry? Um, and so the conversation started um, around the inspiration from Live Green. What, what we're doing is developing a green events code. Um, and so effectively what we're trying to do is establish a, a workable and credible standard a set of principles and standards um, that the event industry feels it can work to. And there's a few reasons for doing this. <clears throat> it's not just a response to uh, 
the climate emergency. It's also that the surveys that we do in our industry each year increasingly show that what events are experiencing from councils um, and local authorities across the UK um, is either questions or some requirements around the environment. What we want to do is, is set a level, level playing field, a common understanding. Um, so if we as an industry can be on the front foot in conversation with government and all of our stakeholders to develop a, me a meaningful standard, <coughs> um, not too detailed, we all, as, as, as such a diversity of sizes and types of event, there needs to be room for people to get from A to B in their own way. But if we can establish this level playing field of what looks like acceptable standards, which, which will contribute meaningfully to that journey we need to go on to net zero, um, that could be something that local authorities across the UK refer to and create a level, level playing field. Brilliant stuff. Okay, Claire, obviously you um, co-founded a Greener Festival. You've been doing work with festivals across Europe for quite a number of years now. I should know exactly how many. Internationally, actually, 15 years. Brilliant. Okay, and you obviously have an awards scheme. And, and um, if you can just talk through a little bit about that evolution of you know, over the last 15 years and also where... Because there's a lot of work going on throughout the industry, isn't there? I mean, these are all great initiatives. So how... What's, where does, what's the future hold for it and uh, is there room for everyone to kind of come together under one kind of umbrella, if you like? Well, that was loads of questions. Sorry, 15 questions for 15 years. <laughs> um, so I'll start with how AGF kind of, what, what we do and, uh, and how it started, I guess. So 15 years ago, um, we essentially in consultation with various festivals around the UK and across Europe and with audiences uh, established um, a foundation of what could we assess festivals for, essentially, for their sustainability. So we looked at things like waste, power, water, transport. Um, and in a way, this was fulfilling something that local authorities were not doing. There's no standards for sustainability in festivals. And so we essentially set out to fill that gap. Um, and it started as something very simple. There was maybe 22 questions that would look at, okay, do you have renewable energy? Do you segregate your waste? Um, are you looking after the local ecosystems and involving the community, et cetera, et cetera? Um, do you do your CO2 analysis? And then over the years, um, it's kind of a continual consultation process in that every year those who apply and those who assess are constantly evolving uh, the framework and the standards, which is what the Greener Festival Award is based upon. Um, but that's equally evolved to be all different types of events. So from around about 2015, um, we started to work with, um, for instance, conferences or trade, trade shows such as this, different types of events, sports events. Um, and we created a training program that's done internationally by our assessors so that people could have um, a professionalism and an, object, uh, an objective viewpoint on doing the assessments because events were starting to use them for their um, license applications or even in court hearings to prove that they've got certain level of sustainability standards. So we had to step up <laughs> at that point. So in 2015, the training program began um, and then in recent years, especially since the pandemic, we've been meeting up with other sectors in the industry. Uh, for example, we've had working groups of arenas to develop the greener arena standards and certification, which is now being used by 
um, that O2 and Wembley Arena and the SEC as some of the first out the doors. Um, we started working with tours, uh, so going on the tours, but also working out the impact of the tours and how to how to improve, how to reduce their emissions. Um, and then we work with events such as the Queen's Jubilee, where I'm the sustainability director, and try to do uh, implementation, measurement, standards, um, and then feeding it all back into the groups such as Live Green, for example, and, and how we can improve going forwards. So that's kind of a nutshell of um, what AGF do, which has kind of showed the progress as well of what the industry has been doing. Started off as a real niche, kind of, we should do something with festivals 15 years ago, to now being major organisations all pulling together in every different sector of the whole live event ecosystem. Um, I can't remember what your other parts of the question were. The other question <laughs> was actually, um, it just came to me as I was asking you to give a bit of background, was, you know, we've got these brilliant initiatives going, going you know, across the industry, all, you know, three of you there, all, all four of you talking about them. And it's just, maybe it's a question for later, but it's just, you know, one of the things we talked about earlier on post-pandemic is a great thing to come out of the, the pandemic was that um, the industry is working more cohesively together in a, in a more collaborative way. So it's just whether there's a lot of collaboration between you guys. But I think that's a question for later, so we can come to that later. But I wanted to um, go to you, Lewis, actually, because obviously with um, <clears throat> Music Declares Emergency, you know, it's artist-backed. And um, to kind of what we, what we need to do with sustainability is we need to sort of change behaviour, don't we? We need to kind of win people over. Mm. Artists are in a brilliant position and mm. they have a platform to encourage and influence people. Mm. Was that part of the thinking behind the, the initiatives in the first place, but also coupled with that is what sort of how, how much of a sort of priority is it for the artist community from your perspective well it's fundamental um, to, to, to creating music the close emergency you know the, the the things that inspired us to create it such as rock against racism were artist focused so you know the, the the things that we drew on the experiences as music fans and as people who'd worked in music we drew on were all about i remember this artist or this group of artists creating this change so it was all about cultural change. Um, it, was, it was inspired partly as well by a, a, a very well-known survey, certainly in our circles anyway, called Britain Talks Climate, which said that 84% of, of the population of the UK cared about the climate emergency. But then when you looked at levels of engagement and, and what people thought they could do, it just nosedived. And, and there was this, this kind of realisation, well, our realisation was that people do care, but they don't know what to do and they don't feel engaged. And there's barrages of acronyms and different <laughs> information and all kinds of, if we do this, this and that, and we just needed to cut through it and, and put some hope and, and put some, so kind of involve people and make them feel like it was their conversation. And artists can do that in a way that pretty much nobody else can. I mean, you know, politicians and so forth, are divisive artists generally, maybe football teams, maybe sports people, there's, there's odd other examples. So that was the fundamental idea behind Music Declares Emergency. But what we also realised, having worked with artists, as managers, as artists ourselves, as, as DJs, whatever, uh, in labels, was that whilst artists were interested and engaged with this, it wasn't simple for them to just step forward and start shouting about it because artists' businesses are not compromised, but elements of artists' businesses have environmental impacts. And public perception is that artists are all-powerful. So 
even when you try and explain that the artist doesn't make all the decisions, that the public perception is that they do. So there had to be noticeable public change within the industry to give the artist the space and the, 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 the kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Confidence. Confidence, thank you, to speak out. Um, so that's why it was a, a two-lane process. Now, we knew when we gathered back in 2019 that this change was already happening in the industry. There were people in the room that were doing the change. And we knew Julie's Bicycle, so by extension, we knew the people that sat on this stage. We knew what they were doing. But it wasn't publicly known as much as it is now. And, and we've travelled a hell of a long way in those three years. And, you know, the culmination of things like, you know, the, the Live Green Declaration, but also the, the, the Music Climate Pact, the global declaration that came out just before Christmas from the recording sector. Those are really important things that say the music industry is stepping up, is aware, is taking action. And that gives the artist the, the ability to come out and speak. Because when, when we launch, for instance, Foles were very supportive of us when we launched. They went public with us. The Daily Mail immediately ran a carbon calculator of the Foles tour. So that was kind of where artists were at at the start of that. Now, we also work with artists to start to work. You know, we all know, or I think it's pretty much known now, the, the greatest contributor of any live event is audience travel to carbon emissions. So we started to, to work with artists to feed this information. We continue to do that now. We're working with artists on developing training so that they feel empowered to talk about this, so they, they have the answers at their fingertips. So there's all those things to do. I hope that answers your question. It did, very well, very well, yeah. This is a really difficult question to answer, but I think it's very, very key, bearing in mind what's happening, you know, to the events industry or what, what <coughs> events industry is having to cope with this, this season and, and beyond. Um, obviously, there's brilliant work being done by all of you. You've got artists like Coldplay, you know, setting standards or, or, or inspiring people. You've got Massive Attack, hugely active in this area. Um, but there are panels, you know, there's plenty of panels on the supply chain, so we don't need to go into the supply chain in too much detail, but clearly costs and everything else that people are dealing with this year. Sustainability is protecting the planet. We only have one, etc. But, you know, without it, we are nothing. It's absolutely integral to our survival. But people have just tried to do, run businesses this year under difficult, in difficult circumstances. So I guess the question is, what, what kind of economical ways can people start making an impact, uh, start minimising their, their, their impact, if you like? Mm. Well, I think that sometimes the word sustainability in itself is a problem because people see it as a catch-all and are like, oh, sustainability. We can't do sustainability this time because we can't afford it, when actually that's, that's just bonkers <laughs> because sustainability is about being able to sustain what we're doing going forwards and it permeates through everything. So I think trying to get rid of that word altogether would probably be helpful for a start. And then think about, okay, how are we going to reduce our fuel consumption, which is getting really expensive this year? Um, how are we going to minimize any of our electricity usage, which we pay per kilowatt hour? How are we going to reduce the tons of waste that we produce that we pay to dispose of? How are we going to reduce our food waste that we pay for to purchase? You know, vegetarian, vegan food, apart from the new kind of plant-based designer food, often it's cheaper than meat, you know? So there's like, so much is about saving money. Then there's with your staff as well. It's, it's clear with staffing people that want to stay with organizations that actually have a purpose and where they feel like they're doing something for good. So you're more attractive as an employer. 
Um, equally, it's going to become essentially illegal <coughs> to not do the bare minimum of what we need. So, uh, and the financial sectors are aware as well that they're going to stop investing into polluting activities. So for a risk sense with your business, so you need to do it. So it's, um, I think it's just the word sustainability makes this weird scrambled eggs in people's heads because actually it's just common sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, John, in terms of you've got live behind, you've got 13 associations in live behind this. So since that was publicized and you know, announced, what has the general feedback been to it from the industry? Is it, has it been largely positive outside those or 13 organizations? Or has there been any concerns? And are people kind of, you know, what are the next steps, I guess? Um, well, it's, it's been incredibly positive because all 13 associations essentially voted it through the, um, through the process that we went through. Um, however, the, I, I guess what I keep saying is that it's a framework Live and Live Green can't actually do the work on behalf of the 13 associations and the 4,000 members that sit beneath them. And I, I guess that, to me, speaks to the, the challenge that we have with this, which you know, both Lewis and uh, Claire have already touched on, is what I've personally found is once we launched the declaration, it opened up channels of communication where I was getting phone calls from agents, managers, artists, um, venues, you name it, basically just kind of saying, we, we want to do something. It, it's not that we don't want to do something. Our brains are scrambled eggs because we don't understand what, we don't understand what scope one, scope two is, what's net zero. We don't understand any of this, but we want to do something. And, and for me, that's the real positive takeout is that there is a willingness from the industry. We're now organized under a declaration, but the next step is what do you do practically? So Live Green essentially is, is, we're focused on three key things. One is measurement and data. So towards the back end of this year, we're gonna do a, an industry-wide survey and essentially a benchmark on where we are with various metrics within sustainability. The second thing is advocacy and lobbying. So you know, working with governments and stakeholders to work on things like licensing that Chris has spoken about, but most importantly, I think, is about education and training. So what can we do as Live Green to facilitate that information gets into the hands of decision makers? So you know, whether you're a roadie on the road, whether you're a venue manager, whether you're the artist, here's some simple things that you could do. And, and I keep saying <clears throat> every little drop is an important drop in the ocean. And, and we need to, you know, the more we start turning those taps on, the better we're gonna pull in one direction. So um, I, I guess the mantra I wanna leave people with is, don't be afraid of the jargon, don't be afraid to do something, just do anything because it's better than doing nothing. Absolutely, I mean, Chris, you said before that, you know, the, that net zero itself, that people don't necessarily have a very clear perception of what that actually is. I mean, is that a kind of conversation that you feel needs to be had a bit, a bit louder? I mean, obviously, there's a big education piece, but I guess it's people, as you say, not being afraid to actually admit that they don't quite know what some of these things are really, or what it actually genuinely means. I mean, what's, are you finding that you kind of need to, to push on the education piece a little bit more? Yeah, so I'd say 
net zero is both an essential and foundational scientific concept which guides us on our journey. You know, it tells us what we need to do. It tells us that we need to reduce emissions within a certain time frame, you know, to as near zero as possible, 90% have to be by certain date point. So, you know, it's both a fundamental scientific concept <coughs> um, and a source of confusion. And what we're finding in the festival industry is that if we put net zero as a headline, um, in what we're communicating, it's actually a barrier. Um, it's because there's an unease and a misunderstanding around it. And, and, and the lack of understanding is basically what I would say is carbon literacy. We are not yet, as a population and as um, companies and individuals in this industry, uh, largely speaking, we're not yet carbon literate. Um, so in, in terms of what we can do about that, um, there is a project um, called the Carbon Literacy Project in the UK, uh, which I highly rate. I've just taken the Shambhala team uh, through that training, it's called Climate EQ. Uh, it's just one option of, of many great things out there, but it speaks specifically to this issue of carbon literacy. Uh, and it's a, it's a one-day course. It's 79 quid a person. Amazing. Um, and so we've just had that experience a couple of weeks ago of taking our small team of 11 at Shambhala through that. Uh, and it was fantastic. No matter what job people have in the organisation, they now just basically fully understand you know, the climate science, what net zero is, and what we need to do about it. And what, what else is great about this one example um, is that they leave you with a personal pledge and an organizational pledge. Um, so, you know, what are we, now that we've got this knowledge, what are we actually going to do about it? And it's really, despite the fact that, um, you know, we might be one of the most sort of pioneering festivals around environmental practice, it was still the case that not everybody in our organization, maybe in a finance role or a uh, site procurement role. Not everybody had that foundation of knowledge and it's, it's really useful. So I think echoing what John was saying about the training piece, as a sector we need to get carbon literate. And I suppose for those of you that are new to carbon uh, or new to net zero, <coughs> a lot of people in the audience I know do know what net zero is. Um, but essentially what we're talking about is actively reducing emissions as much as we possibly can. And then for that small segment, which are genuinely unavoidable at any point in time, either due to where we are with technology or where we are on our journey, um, we're talking about cli climate investment. I like to call it offsets, carbon balancing, but we're talking about offsetting the unavoidable emissions. And it's that equation. You know, we've, we've, we've got down maybe 90%. We're having to offset 10%. That's net zero. <clears throat> Because obviously, you know, it's vital that the, that, the, that the industry, that the workers and everyone else is absolutely as informed as they possibly can be about this. From an artist's point of view, I mean, they're in a, from a punter's point of view, from an audience's point of view, I guess, artists are in a perfect position to, um, I mean, we touched on this earlier on, but I guess the question is really, is there room for more artists to kind of actually, at events, get involved with kind of pushing that message across? Yeah. At events, people want to be entertained. They don't want to be preached at. It's a helpful balance. But just... Yes, and, and, and you, you, know, you, don't, you, don't, you don't want to go and see your favourite artist and, and then have a 20-minute kind of carbon literacy lecture as part of the show, clearly. But, but artists have done this since time immemorial. I mean, you know, I, the, the one that's, that, that still sticks in my head is Dave at the Brits. You know, it wasn't saying Black Lives Matter, but it was. Um, and it was clearly obvious what the messaging was and it was very effective. You know, artists are creative beings with creative teams. They can make creative messaging. 
We had it with Billie Eilish when she did a live stream. You know, she did all the good girls go to hell, slammed no music on a dead planet behind her. That was it, but it was perfectly effective and hashtag no music on a dead planet flew around and people went, what's this? And they started talking and it's, what artists can do is they can open doors to understanding. We don't need them to stand there and say, you know, did you realize that by taking the car, you put this much, we don't need that. Yeah. What we need artists to do is inspire and spark imagination. So in a sense, what, what artists can do, you could say, oh, that's very shallow, but it's not, it's a gateway, you know. Um, and artists are doing it, they do it for us all the time. They design t-shirts for us, they use our logo, they use our hashtags, they, they speak for us, they perform for us, they, you know, and, and across the board, you know. At one point last April, we had Napalm Death, Erilyn Waller, Erilyn Wallen rather, Erilyn Wallen's a classical composer and Napalm Death and Napalm Death, sharing the same message. I mean, you couldn't make it up, but that's the power of music, is that you can have these two absolute opposite ends of the spectrum. And then in the middle, you've got Mel C. <laughs> all saying no music on a dead planet at the same time. That hits so many people. It's, it's inspirational stuff. Mm. And then all the work that these people are doing, Julie's Bicycle are doing, the, the actual nuts and bolts stuff and the, the, the serious stuff, and it's all there. It's, it's bringing people to it. And it's also, artists can, they can, they can inspire people to, to think about it and to, to just take on the basic information. Now, most people who go to a gig don't realise their, their, their travel is the biggest contributor because they've, they've been, they exist in a culture that's told them that they need to recycle, they need to do this, it's all about personal stuff. Because that, you know, we don't exist in, in a vacuum. There are oppositional forces also putting messaging out into the culture. So, you know, it's not a fight necessarily. I wouldn't want to be that oppositional myself. But we have to address these messages that are out there and artists can help us do that mm. and to get the truth out there and to get people <clears throat> to really understand what is fundamentally happening here which is we're facing something we need to address yeah obviously we're in you know the environmental issue is, is probably you know more concerning than ever but actually you know when you look at what's happening across the industry there's a lot of inspiring work happening it feels like we're really getting to a level of you know a good momentum behind it so claire are you feeling you know you've been doing you know AGF for 15 years compared to where it was 15 <coughs> years ago how encouraged are you that we're kind of actually going to be pushing for some, some and, and making some real change across our industry mm. in the next few years um, I'll come to that question in one second sure. I just wanted to respond very quickly to what you were saying because um, I think that making everybody carbon literate isn't necessarily necessary I mean for the industry where you need to work in it yes but for the audiences actually what's What's the fundamental behind all of these calculations? And the fact is, it's we can actually care about our lives and care about nature and care about each other, um, then that is what we need to do because that is what's causing all the problems. If we realize that we're part of the environment and we're connected to it and we breathe in the air every day and we eat the food and we drink the water, it's that basically like realizing that you're a living being as part of the environment that's necessary and I think artists much more than teaching you about net zero that's kind of where that needs to go um, but on the other hand for the industry and where that's gone I mean what we've been saying probably for the last year is we feel like it's come of age now that it began um, not 15 years ago that's when we began as AGF but decades before that it was quite a fringe movement of like the green futures at Glastonbury or Big Green Gathering, etc., or like the hippies in the 60s, you know, 
It's been out there for a long time and now it's got to the point of being um, significantly on the corporate agenda as well as on the fringes as well. Um, we know what we need to do. We've also got a very tight deadline and we all know there's nothing like a deadline to get things done. Um, so I feel like right now we're, re like, we're just doing it actually. And yes, you can bring everybody together and be like, okay, we need to all be united and all be in agreement and all be moving in the same direction. But even if there's some outliers, you know, you don't need to wait. Like, we know what needs to be done. There's people already doing it. And you just need to really pull your finger out and get on with it, basically. And that is what we're seeing happening in the industry. You know, it's like unparalleled amounts of activity, but there's challenges. Somebody raised earlier about, are we going to address um, being able to get access to mains power, for instance, within parks? These are the kind of things we can do now because take London as an example. You've got the Royal Parks have got their policies. Every event that happens within it have got their policies. Westminster Council, for example, have theirs. The DCMS are, are pushing in the same direction as well. We're all ready um, and we have the knowledge for how to do it. One more thing and then I'll stop talking. <laughs> is with the amount that you need to train and understand the sustainability jargon or whatever it is, if you were booking power for your event, you wouldn't learn to become an electrician before you did it. You'd call Tim or somebody, you know? So you don't need to be an expert to get started as well. There's a lot of expertise already out there. So understanding the fundamentals, as you said, but don't feel like, oh, I can't do anything. Just ask for help and speak to each other. Okay. Um Chris, I just wanted to kind of get some sort of um, momentum in terms of, you know, talking about really economical ways that people can make change. Obviously, at Shambhala, you basically made the whole event kind of vegetarian in terms of the food supply on site. So that doesn't seem to me like a, as a hugely expensive thing, but it's definitely changing, it's kind of forcing some behaviour change. But it's a huge improvement for the, or lessening the impact on the environment significantly by, by doing that. Can you just sort of talk me through the thinking behind it and what the reaction was among festival goers. Because I would imagine at Shambhala that actually that wasn't a huge culture change for a lot of people. Yes, so um, as a festival in terms of the cost case, it didn't cost us anything to put a policy in place. Um, what we did do is invest in a license for a carbon calculator, which we then gave to our food traders for free and then supported them through a process of um, uploading their ingredients, looking at what the impact of each meal was, um, and that was all in the context of being inspired by the idea of the uh, One Planet Plate, it's called, which is um, a measure provided by the World Wildlife Fund on what a sustainable meal is globally, <coughs> excuse me, and that's 0.5 kilograms for a meal. But actually the tipping point for us as a team is watching Cowspiracy in 2016, which is so shocked. Um, it's kind of that thing where you kind of know and you, you, you just put it out to the side of your mind and get on with your life, which is what we're all doing largely with the environment. Um, and we, we watched Cowspiracy and we were just reminded and so shocked um, by how the meat industry operates that we just knew as an organization taking a pioneering stance on the environment uh, that it wasn't an option anymore to serve meat and fish. Uh, since we've had, uh, what's the fish version? Seaspiracy. Since we've had Seaspiracy, which is equally as sort of like shocking. 
Um, so we made a decision at board level that we, we had to take action on it. Um, and we, we actually bring all of our traders in for a, a kind of team day. Um, we know that, with our, that, that the relationship between festival organizers and traders, we're already asking quite a lot of them in terms of our sustainability policy. Um, and for some of the traders, it's a, it was a real challenge to make that change. Uh, so we got everyone together in advance, you know, made the case, talked about how we were going to do this, what support. Um, it, 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 it was the case that the uh, bacon going off the menu meant that there was vast amounts of halloumi required. Um, and we couldn't buy organic halloumi in bulk, so we actually had to do a direct deal with a, with a farmer to produce wholesale for the whole festival, just, just as an example some of the challenges. But with the audience, it was interesting. Um, we, we took the stance that um, we think this is an important conversation to bring. Um, so our conversation with our audience is, we are not saying you should be vegan, but we feel this is a hugely important conversation to have. We're in a privileged position to have that conversation, and actually the most effective way we can bring it is by taking it clean off the menu. Now, we did have kickback from a minority um, of very passionate people saying, basically, you know, who are you to decide what my diet should be? Uh, our response to that felt really clear. It said, well, this is four days. We're an ethical business, and you can choose to come or not. So, you know, festival organizers will have a different relationship with that conundrum in terms of uh, their audience type and ticket demand. I understand that. We, we were in a good position to do that. Um, so then, so we take fish, meat and fish off the menu. We very much know that it's our responsibility to make sure that this is the best food experience anyone has ever had. We're salespeople, you know, for this change. Um, so we put a lot of effort into that and people had a good experience. But the in really interesting thing for me about this was the stats. Now, when you're tinkering with power or waste, you get the information, you know the measures that you've taken, and you know whether they've been successful or not because you've got the data, but with behavior change, you just sort of often have this sense that you, or hope that you've had an impact, but it's anecdotal. Mm. Um, and you're probably surrounded by people who are telling you it's great, so you get a distorted view of the world and your festival's impact. But we did some, we did some stats, so we, we, we did audience um, surveys straight after the festival. Um, and we said to people, you know, are, are you a meat and fish eater? Well, 78% um, uh, of our audience said we are meat and fish eaters. I think that's about the UK average. Uh, although, I don't know, I think, I think that's above the UK average. The UK average a few years ago, I haven't looked at the stats this year, was about 12% of the, um, in 2015 it was about 12% of the population, we were about a quarter. Uh, so, whilst you might think, oh, well, the Shambhala audience is alternative. This is going to be an easy ride. Not the case. Uh, whilst double the normal average of our audience um, were vegetarian or vegan, we've still got 75% of people, roughly, that are eating meat. Um, and we've made this choice on their behalf. So anyway, the stats after the festival, we surveyed the whole audience to say, you know, what was your experience? <clears throat> was it good or bad? Have you made a change to your diet as a result of your experience at the festival? 50% of people who said they eat meat and fish said they'd made a drastic, not, not marginal, but drastic, quote, change to their diet. And we're thinking, great, you know, that's a couple of weeks after the festival. It feels great to have had that impact, but will it last? So we, we surveyed them all six months later. And amazingly, and this is the bit that makes me excited, 76% of people that said, I have made a drastic change to my diet. 76% of them, six months later, said they'd sustain that change. 
And that was the first real sense that we had as a festival, that, that this behaviour change is really valuable. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great example of, of, of how the event environment can influence people and why does silence square. And John, I mean, obviously, you know, you're heading up some, some of the biggest uh, entertainment buildings in, in, in Europe, you know, the O2 obviously being, being one of them, uh, the nearest. Um, what, what, what changes are you making at those buildings? And are any of them kind of, because obviously, you know, you're going to have a slight, AG Europe is going to have a slightly different budget to a theatre owner, maybe, or a, or a sort of club owner. So can you just sort of talk me through some of the most imp uh, impressive changes or the, or the changes that you're most excited by that you're implementing at your buildings and also what can you know, realistically happen or be taken uh, away and used in different, different venues? Yeah, I always say that the most important thing that we do in venues is about power and energy. Um, so we took a process about 10 years ago across all of our global uh, network venues to to switch to green power um, to reduce our energy consumption as much as possible and if we take an example of the O2 for instance in the last 10 years we've reduced our scope 1 and scope 2 emissions by over 80% which is a phenomenal impact and just if you consider how big and how busy the venue is but that pales in, into significance to what we've done in Germany for instance where both our campuses in Hamburg and, and Berlin have um, absolutely zero scope one and scope two impacts. Um, so they've done some really, really awesome things there. Um, our focus going forward is on beyond scope one and scope two. So we're doing some, some really good work with Claire at the moment at the O2, trying to understand our scope three emissions. Um, and then we'll, we're going to be working with our suppliers in the value chain to reduce those as much as possible. Um, Food is a huge focus. You've just been talking about that. Um, Levy Restaurants, our supplier across our European footprint in terms of food and beverage, have committed to ensure that their operations are net zero by 2025. So at the O2, for instance, we ideally want to get to the point in 2025 where we can say we are a net, net zero business. So in short, food and fuel. And something interesting we're working on, um, it's been touched on a little bit, is the impact of audience travel. Uh, we feel strongly that people need to be responsible for their own emissions, but we will help them get there as much as we possibly can. So we're looking at some innovative solutions uh, at the O2, for instance. You know, we have two million visitors a year that come through. If we can get them to commit to making change to their travel into and out of the arena, and you know what they can't reduce in terms of emissions, how can we, we balance that off properly? I think we've got some exciting things on the horizon to, to get that to beyond zero. Great stuff. And Claire, I mean, obviously you've got that international perspective. You're engaging with you know, event, outdoor events of all shapes and sizes and, and venues as well. I mean, what, what, what inspiring things have you seen that, you know, you, you, as you say, you've been doing this for 15 years, but in the last six months, year, obviously it's not been the most active time for events, but recent things that you've seen that, that have inspired you and filled you with hope? Um, well, things that I've just thought, oh, finally, that's fantastic. For example, in Denmark, um, one of the festival sites there has worked with their local authority that own the site in order to implement a main um, grid connection so that they can now just plug in and they don't need to bring any generators anymore, which has been fantastic. Um, over at Digital in the Netherlands, um, they have a circular food court, which isn't so new because they started about four years ago, probably. Um, but this is where they 
get all of their food supply or as much as possible from food that would have been waste. So already it's got like a good carbon output because of the fact that it would have otherwise been rotting. And then they have a lineup of chefs uh, called the food lineup. And then they'll make food based upon what comes in that day. And then they have amazing audience messaging as well that talks about the, the impacts of food waste and circularity of food waste. It's 100% vegan and they did the due diligence on their um, serveware so all of that is compostable and can actually be composted because often that's not the case. Yeah. Um, and then they separate it all in what they call resource hubs. So instead of talking about waste, they talk about it as resource. Um, and then all of that compost that they produce from the serveware and the food goes on to local agriculture to then grow more food. And um, This is in Amsterdam, for example. So uh, they're a couple that I really love. Um, and then you've got in Portugal, and now bearing in mind the last two years, not a lot has happened. Yeah. <laughs> um, but in Portugal, with the likes of Boom Festival, they work on um, giving really people the inspiration of permaculture, for example. And they have these gardens that they, they're very lucky that they own the site, but they have these gardens, edible gardens, that people can then go and pick food while they're at the festival. And then they have clay ovens where people can go and cook their meals and they and they learn about, okay, what kind of actual plants and vegetables can you use to then go and cook with communally. And they've started to work with local cities. So where you've got parks um, that aren't necessarily being utilized so well or urban areas that, that kind of need a bit of inspiration and life in them for people who maybe don't go to expensive festivals <laughs> every, every year, you know, can't afford to do that. And it's breathing those, um, I suppose, ideas, concepts, and life into the cities from what has been built creatively through the festivals, for example. So they're some of my favorite things at the moment, I'd say. Great stuff, okay. Lewis, are you confident, bearing in mind the challenges that everyone's facing in the events industry this year with costs and et cetera, et cetera, um, are you confident that sustainability is gonna remain at the forefront of people's you know, considerations? Short answer, yes. I mean, the, the conversation today suggests it is, and the conversations we're having beyond, you know, with other players in, in live suggest that it's interesting that, 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 that you know, when we started, the, the record labels were the, the first line of conversations we had, probably partly because of our connections, but also because they felt like they, they probably arguably had an easier solvable problem in terms of production process. Um, but now the conversation is very much in live. You know, we see it every day. We have conversations almost daily uh, in different facets of life. A bit like John said, you know, an agent, a promoter, a, an artist, a manager, all about life. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm really, really confident. And a lot of the solutions are not necessarily about huge amounts of financial investment. They're about changes to, to practice. And I think when you've got somebody like Coldplay trying to bring in innovation, you know, when, when somebody at the top of the touring tree is willing to put the finance into that, inevitably what you're going to get is a scaling down the system of anything that works. So, you know, hats off to Coldplay, they got a lot of stick for that, but we need those kind of moments where people essentially put their money where their mouth is, because if they can come up with things that work and we can scale them down, they'll become more cost effective for people as we go down the chain, and that's brilliant. So all that innovation. But I think beyond that, I think the audience message is getting through. And I think the audience, the, the, the power of life to, to inhabit spaces and to bring people together and, and to use those spaces and that bring together to cleverly put forward positive messages that says, 
you are a community of people who have a shared interest, whether it's a band or a festival or whatever. This is something we care about, like Christina Champala, like Johnston AG and so on. <clears throat> we like you to care about it. These are our values. You share our values, whether it's an artist or an event. Get on board. That's the most powerful thing they can do, because ultimately we're all going to hit a brick wall where there are certain things we cannot do. We cannot, uh, as a music industry, change transport infrastructure. We cannot change tax. We cannot change the things that, you know, the main contributors to climate change are energy, agriculture, and transport. We can't change those. We can change what we use of them within our systems, but we can't change them to the level where it makes the real difference that we need globally. But what we can do is we can encourage people to speak out and get on board and say, we need these things changing because we care about the next generation, the generation after that, you know, we, we want our great-grandchildren to be going to all points Eastern Shambhala. We don't want them stood on the top of a mountain going, where did all the food go? It's that simple. Absolutely, yeah. We're running out of time, so now is the opportunity, if anyone has a question for this very knowledgeable and expert panel. Any questions? Okay. Right then. Well, okay. So, I mean, one last question to all of you. Where do you see our industry being in five years' time when it comes to sustainability and the way it's going to need to and hopefully will operate? Um, we'll start with Claire. Um, I'd say, like, more so to kind of flip, flip that a little bit, that um, there's a real need and necessity to actually... I suppose, take responsibility for what we have the ability to do. Because what we're looking at here is, yes, it's climate change, but we've also, we're also facing as a society a really serious energy crisis, really serious social problems, not only from our international, um, well, you know, everybody knows what's happening right now, um, but also psychologically and with mental health and well-being and a disjointedness from uh, like within ourselves and therefore with our environment and within communities. This is a genuine situation of what we're living in now. And since the pandemic, through schools being separated, there's, uh, you know, these problems are really quite off the chart. <laughs> Not to be a misery gut, but therefore we need to within the next five years go okay we've got a real amazing voice and a real amazing capability as an events industry or a music industry we can speak to millions of people and we are very capable and very practical at knowing how to build energy systems how to build water and sewage systems how to provide food to many people um, and this is going to be needed more and more because we have left a lot of things quite late and there are going to be these emergency situations that need dealing with. But it doesn't need to just be about the emergency and the response to the emergency in the next five years because it can actually be hugely positive because there is that sense of um, disconnection or that sense of hopelessness for many people and feeling like there's a loss of agency we can help to galvanize that by creating these community spaces where people feel connected, where people feel that they can do something, where they can see the positive alternatives, where they can see like, oh, we can have these amazing vegan food, we can power an entire arena and come together on renewable energy. You know, it's, 
that's where I see us being in five years' time, actually as a solution, helping local authorities to change their, um, their, the way that people move because of the fact that we can communicate to people through our venues, for example. I think it's going to be um, a very, very challenging, but therefore very focused and very positive place to be. Um, that's my thoughts. Okay, good to see you. <coughs> Excuse me, Chris. Yeah, so thinking about this through the prism of the Green Events Code, uh, which is coming in the next couple of months, um, I can see that we have a common language, common aim, common targets, and a common sense of what the solutions are for all outdoor events. So thinking just, just about this part of the industry. And what that means in practical terms is um, grid connection, the introduction of hybrid technology. Um, it means a more circular economy approach to materials. Um, like Claire was talking about, you know, designing out waste from, from our ecosystem. It means less meat, fish and dairy. I don't think it means none, but it means drastically less in reality. Uh, one of the stats I didn't throw out when I was talking about food is that, you know, food's something like a quarter of our global emissions. It's really significant, whereas aviation is something like 2%. Not that that isn't hugely important, but just to put it in perspective, food is really where it's at. <coughs> Um, I can see a refill revolution which is happening on the high street at the moment and I can see that in festivals in five years that needs to be normal. Uh, I had a really inter interesting journey today. I, I, I bought my coffee in a, a little independent place underneath Temple Mead Station in Bristol and they've, they've got this, um, uh, I think it's called Can Can, they've got this new system whereby if you live locally in Bristol, you buy a cup, it's associated with an app, it's got a QR code on it, you know, you use the cup, you pop it back in, you get, you know, so it's like an exchange system within a local area. And then I got inside Bristol Temple Mead Station and they've got this new really fancy chilled water filler station, you know, and you'll have seen just out here. And so I think, I think almost festivals, we need to catch up. And where I see ourselves in five years is that refill is just standard, you know, and, and, and therefore single use will, just won't exist. So there are a few thoughts. Good stuff, okay. Sure. Yeah, and I mean, excuse me if I'm an idealist and thinking it from just such a big picture, and I'm thinking beyond the industry and a, a beyond the 13 associations, but for me, in five years' time, I'd, li I'd like to see broadly two things. One, recognition that our planet is fucked if we carry on doing <laughs> what we're doing at the moment. The roof blew off the O2 10 days ago. I mean, it, it's, it's real, people. Um, and secondly, a commitment from from everybody, and I guess I'm evangelizing this wherever I go, but just, just do something. Recognize there's an emergency and play your part because we can't rely on government to do it for us. We can't rely on our next door neighbor to do it for us. We can't rely on live or music declares or a greener festival or, sorry, I crashed there for a second. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just so passionate about it. Basically, everybody needs to play a part. No matter how small your part, just just follow a path towards um, positive change. Great stuff. Okay, thank you, John. Um, I think in terms of the music industry, we'll see rapid progress. So I, I think we will see increasingly a, a net zero music industry, certainly in the UK, into Europe and the US, in the major markets. Um, I think that will be an extremely powerful driver of the continual cultural change that's going on. I think Chris is right. I think things like refills, the, you know, Latitude were doing it what, 10 years ago. Nobody at Latitude even thinks twice now. They just do it. It's part of the thing, you know. 
all those things. I'd love to see that across UK venues. Um, it needs infrastructure. There's all kinds of things that need solving. But I think these things will be solved. And the thing with the music industry, and I've been in it too long, but long enough to know that every time there's a really big challenge, see piracy, they find a way around. Mm. The, the, the innovation in the music industry, the kind of people that are drawn towards it are the kind of people who go, ah, okay, looks like we're buckets. Oh no, hold on, I've got an idea. And they find a way out of it. That's the innovation that this whole thing needs. But also, I think the climate activists outside of music are becoming much more intertwined with the cultural climate activists. And that synergy, which I hope we've been a part of and will continue to be a part of, is really powerful. Because that's when we get into government. That's when we get into the people with the skills to lobby. That's when we get the scientists talking to the musicians. That's when you have you know, professors who understand the science talking to musicians who can transmit it in a simple way. That's the nub of it for me. Um, and I think in five years, we won't have solved this. I hope um, we have to be in a better place for it. I think the music industry will be. But I think hopefully society also will be. We'll have got rid of the last vestiges of the I don't think we need to do anything culture that has been holding us back for the best part of 15 years. Great stuff. Excellent. We all have a role to play in this and let's... Uh... Let's hope we get to that stage. Um, thank you very much, everybody, for coming. Great to have you. And uh, most of all, thank you for the panel. Thank you. Thank you. Want to learn more about the show that brings together event professionals from every sector? Visit eventproductionshow.co.uk.